0: Good morning. morning. What happened to my people? (laughs) Is the church listing a little bit? That's really funny. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. Anyone who does not love remains in death. 1 John 3.14. It's obvious this morning that the pastor is not here, so that's probably not the text that you'll be preaching from, but
1: um,
0: by the way, thanks to George for stepping in this morning on Sunday School. He finished Pastor's uh, series on revival. Uh, Excellent challenge to us this morning in regard to our walk and our growth in Christ. Um, So, number two there, the revival thing is not over but over um we want to remain uh diligent in our in our thinking and striving for revival but uh that series is over and jared is going to step in and take my place um, this time uh, and we're going to do studies in the confession so fresh start you want to make sure plan on your calendar be here every sunday morning 9 30 right where you're sitting and we'll, we'll have a good time around the, of the Word together. Uh, studies in the Gospel of John resumes tonight at 6 p.m. Uh, that'll be me up front. Uh, we are in John chapter 14. We'll be starting around verse 20 or so and going through the end of the chapter, hopefully. So if you want to read that uh, before tonight, it'd be helpful. Choir rehearsal tonight at five o'clock. Mm, let's say no on that, it looks like a no. No, no choir rehearsal tonight. The baby bottle drive is on. So if you didn't get a bottle, take it home, fill it with loose change or dollar bills, and bring it back on Father's Day. Men's Bible study Tuesday, 10 a.m. at the McLeod's. Prayer meeting Wednesday at 7. And you see the note there on the church directory. Um, if you haven't, is there a card still there somewhere? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, okay, so if you need one, get that fill it out um, pictures next week pictures next week so Can we put, you just like put your what's that Can we bring in our own pictures you yeah you could i guess email a picture to you yeah email a picture to george i guess okay but if you don't do that <laughs> comb your hair okay uh, one hair. yeah Um, Acts and facts. And I also noticed uh, in the office, I think the uh, Days of Praise are also here in a box. They'll be out next week. They'll be out next week. week. Um, Okay, what else have I missed? George's email. George's email? I don't know it. Post it. (laughs) everybody got that
1: <laughs> there you go that's
0: probably better all right scripture for meditation then this morning um you want to
2: change that sure uh, luke 17 1 through 10 i believe
0: luke 17 1 through 10 okay hang on one second All right, let's read Luke 17, 1 through 10. Stand together and open our service with a word of prayer. <coughs> Dale, I can see you because there's nobody between us. Would you open for us? <laughs>
1: Amen.
2: Hym number one, that should be easy for us to find this morning. Number one, the brown. I should say.
3: Joyful. Joy-
2: 642 in the brown? Yeah. In the red, okay. 642. 642 in the red. And why have you chosen that this morning? I just love this Okay. It's <laughs> a good hymn.
0: morning is not in the bulletin, we are going to read Matthew 13, 1 through 23, parable of the sower. And I'm going to change Bibles because I came with my little teeny word Bible and I can't see it from here. So give me just one second. please. Matthew 13, starting in verse 1. That same day Jesus went out of the house and sat by the lake. Such large crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and sat on it while all the people stood on the shore. Then he told them many things in parables, saying, A farmer went out to sow his seed, he who has ears let him hear the disciples came to him and asked why do you speak to the people in such parables he replied the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you but not to them whoever has whoever has will whoever excuse me whoever has will be given more and he who ha- will have abundant have an abundance whoever does not have even what he has will be taken from him. This is why I speak to them in parables. Though seeing, they did not see. Though hearing, they did not understand. In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts. And in turn, I will heal them. But blessed are your eyes because they see, and your ears because they hear. For I tell you the truth, many prophets and righteous men long to see what you see, but did not see it, and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. Listen then to what the parable of the sower means. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what is sown in his heart this is the seed that was sown along the path the one who received the seed that fell on rocky places is the man who hears the word and at once receives it with joy but since he has no root it lasts only a short time when trouble or persecution comes because of the word he quickly falls away the one who received the seed and fell among the one who received the seed that fell among the thorns is the man who hears the word But worries of his life and the deficiencies of wealth choke it, making it unfruitful. But the one who received the seed that fell on good soil is the man who hears the word and understands it. He produces a crop yielding a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. ask that the Lord would bless his word.
2: 466 in the hymnal, 466 in the brown. Oh By no accident, that our people who are missing today are missing. It's by no accident that the people today are present, they're present. It's all by providence. Okay, we have a missing half. We don't mean to neglect those of you that are holding down the fort over there, but it's obvious this morning that we're missing some and missing, of course, our pastor. But God doesn't do things on accident, He does things always on purpose. There is always a reason for His actions, and they're always good reasons and we sometimes we're going to talk about this today but we sometimes can't see the good in the things that he does but he tells us in his word everything he does is good number one whether we perceive it to be or not and number two it's for the good of his people so if that's true and God's word says that it's true then we ought to take great comfort in that even when we are on our sick bed and can't be here or even by God's providence that we are here. There's a purpose in all things. So let's have a word of prayer. Pray for me also. I uh, providentially had a short night too. It wasn't nearly as rough as my father's, uh, but I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. So pray for me as, as I pray for us too. Father in heaven, we are thankful for your word. It has brought us to you. We thank you for Jesus Christ, who has secured for wicked sinners a place within the family of God, a position, Lord, that, was, that is better than where we started from, even as your creation. How much more do we gain through the sacrifice of our Savior? We can't even calculate, but we are thankful for that position now, Lord. We ask that you would be this morning with those who could not be with us, those who are sick. Thank you for each one that you've brought out here. And we thank you, Lord, for the truth that we've just spoken about, that everything on this planet is by design. Everything that transpires in this created universe of yours is up by your design. There's not a molecule or an atom that escapes your notice. All of it obeys you. So we pray, Lord, this morning as we look into your word uh, that you will bless us strengthen us by your Spirit, not only to to deliver the message, but also, Lord, to hear it, to receive it, and that, Lord, through your Spirit, we would be people who embody and do what we hear and learn. We ask for your Spirit to be upon us today, and we ask that in all things the Lord Jesus Christ would be elevated and magnified. We ask this all in his precious name. Amen. Have you ever spent time with a brother or sister in the faith who seemed to have an incredible grasp of the knowledge of God, but didn't live like they had any idea of who God was? Or have you spent time with a good Christian friend who was struggling with a particular sin, but couldn't seem to let it go? They may know all the texts of scripture that instruct them what to do, and the dangers of continuing in said sin and the responsibility of a child of God to expunge sin from their lives, and yet they continue. Worse yet, have you encountered people who knew the before-mentioned things and not been aware that they were involved with that sin? Or how about the person in God's family who has been saved from a life of wretched, self-destructing sin, and yet would not witness to others lost in sin Of the tremendous grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, grace that they had experienced firsthand. It's possible. I have met people like this, and I have been like this myself. In Christian circles today, there seems to exist a dichotomy between what is believed with the heart and what is done with the body. There is a tremendous deficit between the knowledge of God that we have attained from the Spirit's teaching and the functionality and the import of that knowledge upon our day-to-day lives, we know so much more than what we put into practice. Such a deficit brings up some good questions. Why are we given knowledge about God? For what purpose is this knowledge to be used? For whose benefit has this knowledge been given? We may also ask, why doesn't this knowledge affect the way we live? Why haven't we done all that we know? If there is a deficit between what we know and how we live, we must then ask these more important questions. Why are we living this way? Is it acceptable to God for us to live this way? Now we can answer that last question first because if we are indeed doing less than we know we ought to do, then we are living in a state of sin. Living in a state of constant sin is entirely unacceptable to God for his children. And the first question concerning why we live this way is much more difficult to answer, but we'll attempt to learn the truth about ourselves, at least in part, today. I would like us to look at the topic of being ineffective for Christ, whether our knowledge of God is rudimentary or pervasive, whether we are a babe in Christ or a sage saint, whether we are pastor or parishioner, there is no difference in our responsibility. We are commanded, all of us by God, to use what we have been given for the edification of his kingdom. God has given us everything that we are and have so that everything that we are and have under our supervision must be used in his service. When we do not use all that we are and have for the building up of the kingdom of God, we are being ineffectual. Being ineffectual is the last thing we want to be in service to Christ. The responsibility of the gospel, our first point, So how are we ineffective for Christ? Well, one of the first and most important ways that we can be ineffective is that we do not spread the gospel. And by doing so, we do not increase the kingdom of Christ. And to illustrate this point, I would like us to consider what we have already read, the parable of the sower. This parable is probably a very familiar text to all of us. And I believe that some of the more familiar texts of the Bible sometimes tend to somehow lose meaning to us, not because the word of God is impotent, but rather because we, the listeners, believe we have learned all that we can from a particular text and therefore turn a deaf ear to the whisperings of the Spirit. I would like us to look again at Matthew 13 and look at it a little differently today. I want us to focus on the third soil outlined in Jesus' parable. In verse 22 of Matthew 13, it reads, The one who received the seed that fell among the thorns is the man who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke it, making it unfruitful. The first thorn that Jesus describes is the thorn of the worries of this life. Notice first and foremost that this thorn is a very, very large thorn. The worries of this life are many. We worry about everything we possibly can. What's going to happen today at work? Will I get fired or laid off? How am I going to support my family? What if I get sick? What if I die? What if my spouse or children get sick or die? These worries go on and on and on. Jesus had something to say about worrying in Matthew 6, verses 25 through 34. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food and the body more important than clothes? And his righteousness, and all of these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. The crux of the matter is this when we worry, we do not trust God to do what is right. And to not trust God to do what is right implies that he is capable of doing something wrong. To imply that God can do something wrong means that in essence you are saying God is not perfect. Or you are saying that God is not good. Either way, you imply that God is not God. The pagans worry, and for good reason, they do not know God. They do not know what God has said concerning his own actions. But we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Romans 8, verse 28. As children of the almighty king of the universe, we are not to doubt his actions or their intent. True enough, events occur that we interpret as unfavorable, unpleasant, bad, or even evil. But when these events happen, we must look at them through the eyes of God. If we believe the scriptures, then we must believe that all things work for our benefit because God wills it. We must understand that even in catastrophic events that leave us maimed physically or emotionally, we may trust God to do what is right for us and on our behalf. We must say with Job, Though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. Job 13, verse 15. When we come to the thorn of worry, we must remember the following things. Number one, God has first commanded us not to worry, for he has promised to provide for us. Number two, God has promised that all that he does is for our good and not to harm us. And number three, when hard times come, in the midst of disaster, we are to hope in God. How are we as the people of God handling the thorn of worry? I dare say most, if not all of us, still worry a great deal. Have we looked at passages this morning that were unfamiliar to us? And if so, then we need to repent in the light of the revealed word of God. If these passages were familiar to us, then we have knowingly been involved in sin, and we need to repent all the more. Now, how all does this relate to the parable of the sower and being ineffective for Christ? Well, I believe one way in which worry manifests itself is in the presentation of the gospel. In the parable of the sower, Jesus talks about the types of soil and what each plant yielded as a result of being planted. Therefore, this parable is interested in the spreading of the gospel. How do we know this? Well, look at verse 23 of Matthew 13. But the one who received the seed that fell on good soil is the man who hears the word and understands it. He produces a crop yielding 160 or 30 times what was sown. You see, the reason the seeds are sown in the first place is so a a plant may grow to maturity and produce more of its kind. I believe we often focus on the kinds of people the different types of soil produce rather than on the purpose as to why the seed was sown in the first place. Jesus expects a crop of 30, 60, or 100 times what was sown, and that is a pretty tall order. And we will not produce this kind of crop if we are bogged down with worry. Go with me to Matthew 25, and let's start our reading at verse 14. Matthew 25, starting at verse 14. You probably know this passage very well as as well. Matthew 25, verse 14, and it says, Again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his property to them. To one he gave five talents of money, to another two talents, and to another one talent, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received the five talents won at once and put his money to work and gained five more. So also the one with two talents gained two more. But the man who received one talent went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received the five talents brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five talents. See, I have gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with the two talents also came. "'Master,' he said, "'you entrusted me with two talents. "'See, I have gained two more.' "'His master replied, "'Well done, good and faithful servant. "'You have been faithful with a few things. "'I will put you in charge of many things. "'Come and share your master's happiness.' "'Then the man who had received the one talent came. "'Master,' he said, "'I knew that you are a hard man, "'harvesting where you have not sown "'and gathering where you have not scattered seed.' So I was afraid and went out and hid your talent in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you." His master replied, "'You wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Well then, you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. Take the talent from him and give it to the one who has the 10 talents. For everyone who has will be given more, and he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Often this passage is used to help us gain perspective on utilizing our spiritual gifts and the servants of the Lord. But tell me, what greater spiritual gift have you received apart from your salvation? Was not the gospel entrusted to you on the day you first believed? What then have you done with this gift from God? Have you put this talent to work as the two faithful servants did in the parable, returning 200% of what was given to them? Or have you buried it deep within yourself where no one can find it. Now let's analyze for a moment what could be bogging us down with worry in regards to the presentation of the gospel. A person may worry about what people think about them being a Christian. Up until now, this person has remained silent with regard to spiritual things for fear that others may look down upon them or disregard them. These people are ashamed of their adopted family. They are ashamed of their brother and savior, Jesus Christ, who bled on a wooden Roman cross to procure their salvation. And Jesus is quite specific about people being ashamed of him. If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the son of man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his father's glory with the holy angels. Mark 8 verse 38. Maybe it's the message of the gospel that makes people worry. Well, that's relatively easy to fix. We'll just change the gospel so it's less offensive for people to hear. That way we won't have to worry about rejection or harsh responses from people when we witness. People who worry about the offense of the gospel are really ashamed of the gospel. Romans 1 verse 16 says, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Brethren, don't you see that for us to be in worry and to be ashamed of the way in which God has ordained for his kingdom to be advanced is really a mark of cowardice. A cowardly soldier is ineffective and worthless. If we are to be effective for Christ, we must not worry about what others may think of us We must not worry about how people will react to the gospel. We must fearlessly present the gospel whenever we are able to do so, knowing full well that whatever the outcome of that confrontation, number one, it has already been predetermined by God. Number two, it is part of his master plan to bring sinners unto himself. And number three, in being part of all things, it is for the good of those who love God. In other words, it's for your good, too. You may say, well, what if they laugh at me? Well, Jesus was laughed at and mocked with much greater severity, I dare say, than what we even call persecution today. What if they don't respond? Keep trying. But understand that it's not your responsibility to change their hearts. It's God's responsibility. The proclamation of the gospel has two distinct outcomes. Either the gospel softens the heart of an unbeliever or it hardens it. There's nothing else. Either way, you are doing the work of God and his will by being uh, his will is being accomplished. Secondly, we are warned in the parable of the sower against chasing after money. The deceitfulness of wealth has caused many an American Christian to be unfruitful. The underlying idea behind this admonition is the devaluation of the things of God in comparison to temporal wealth. What is wealth? Is it not another gift of God to be used in his service? Sadly, this is not how many Christians see money. Money is looked upon as the reward for doing their job well. They see it as the pay they receive from their job, as what is due to them. We need to see, however, that money, as with everything else we are managing for God, is a gift that can be taken away. We do not earn the money we receive, God gives it to us. It would be well of us to think of the money we receive as a loan from God, and that upon that, God's uh, collection will need to be returned with interest. Unfortunately, most people look upon the amount of money they receive from God as not enough and therefore pursue the expanse of their bank accounts. This pursuit is very time-consuming, and it takes away from the time they should be doing the work of God. I have watched many people who claim Christianity, and myself sometimes as well, work every possible hour they could have over time in order to maximize their earning power. They have worked well into the evenings that should have been family time, hardly ever seeing their wife and children. And because of working late, they often missed the midweek prayer meeting, denying the very lifeblood of the church. They worked every Saturday they could, more family time gone. And when the opportunity provided and presented itself, they worked Sundays as well. And while they worked these outrageous hours, the children were raised by just their mothers, or they had a father, he just wasn't ever around, the church missed the benefit of a faithful contributing member. You know, he tithed, but he was a pew warmer at best, never giving of what really mattered time and investment in service of others. All the while, these worshipers of money justified their actions one of two different ways. Either they didn't prioritize their time away from work, or they thought that what they were doing would only be temporary, but it wasn't. At the end of it all, what did they have? Money? For sure? A family? Maybe. A spiritual life? Not hardly. Secondly, people who are deceived by the allurement of wealth never have enough. They never achieve the point where they can say, I am satisfied. Instead, they continue to find new ways to increase their revenues. Sometimes they are caught up in keeping up with other people, and the cycle never stops. They just have to one-up the other person by buying the next better thing. Other times, they may hoard what they have in miserly ways. And hey, I worked hard for this money, and no one is taking it from me. Ultimately, God condemns the person who spends all of his resources and time trying to be rich as a fool or someone who is morally bankrupt. And he told them this parable, the ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store all my grain and all my goods. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself, but is not rich towards God. Luke 12, verses 16 through 21. Lastly, the chasing after wealth proves that there are wrong motives within the heart. We have already seen that everything that we are and have comes from God and that money is included in everything. Therefore, the money in whatever amount we receive comes directly from God and not our actions. We as Christians who believe in a completely sovereign God must not only believe this, we must also live like this. We live in the most blessed nation on earth. We have so much, and we throw so much of what we have just away. We need to learn to be content with what we have, knowing that God will never let us go without our needs. Surely, our comforts may be at risk as God has never promised to supply those. But dare we weigh the comforts we now experience against trusting God to provide. And this is what makes us unfruitful. This is what makes us ineffective. We are unwilling to let go of our comforts in order to do what God has commanded us to do. Now, I'm not suggesting that we all go out and sell everything we have and live in a hut, But if we did, as long as we were about the work of advancing the kingdom of God, our every need would be provided. My question is, do you believe that? If you do, you as well as me, we need to live like it. I want to take a break for just a moment to say that not every wealthy Christian is ineffective for Christ, not in the least. The gift of wealth and resources should be looked upon as a spiritual blessing and as such, used for the advancement of God's kingdom. And there are Christian people who view wealth in this attitude. They spend of their blessings liberally. They give to the needs in and out of the church. And by doing so, they invest in the kingdom of God and earn a return of interest, not in money, but in people for the Lord. Wealth is deceitful. The pursuit of it takes our energies away from the Lord's work and profits us nothing eternally in the end. When in the pursuit of riches, we are ineffective for Christ. Although we are going to look at the warnings to the churches in Revelation more closely a little later, the problems of the church of Laodicea fit into this section of the message. In the book of Revelation, chapter 3, verse 14, and following, it reads... To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing but you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest And repent. here we see the extent of the deceitfulness of wealth. This church was wealthy, and yes, God provided their wealth. But despite their great financial holdings, they were blind to see that they were spiritually bankrupt. They had taken comfort in the temporal things of this world and had ceased their activities for Christ. The call of Christ to this church is the same to those of us who have personally fallen into this trap. Repent and reprioritize your life. Invest in Christ. Deposit all that you have, your time, your energy, and your passion into Christ. Then and only then will we indeed be rich. Let us look at one more example of our responsibility to share the gospel and be effective for Christ. Ezekiel was one of the prophets God employed to preach his word of repentance. In Ezekiel 3, verses 17 and 18, we read that God told Ezekiel concerning his responsibility, Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. So hear the word I speak and give them warning from me. When I say to a wicked man, you will surely die, and you do not warn him or speak out to dissuade him from his evil ways in order to save his life, that wicked man will die for his sin and I will hold you accountable for his blood. In a very similar manner, we have been given the same mandate. We have received the word of God, and we are charged with speaking what God has revealed to us, to others, in order to warn them of the coming judgment. And according to this passage, God held Ezekiel accountable for any time he should have spoke, but didn't. Have we been commissioned like Ezekiel? Surely we have. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. Brethren, I dare say our commission is much more expansive than what Ezekiel was commissioned to do. And how are we doing? Do we view the world as our commission? Maybe we have focused too keenly on the world as a whole, concerning ourselves with the global mission projects, all the while neglecting the lost souls who live right next to us. Brethren, we have a responsibility to speak concerning the hope that lies within us to all people, whether they listen intently or cover their ears. And who are we to speak to? We are to speak to everyone we can. What greater subject in earth can we find to talk about other than where a person is going to spend eternity? Do we believe in a sovereign God? Certainly we do. Then the people who we live next to, totally unregenerate as they may be, have been placed there for a purpose. Subsequently, every seemingly impromptu meeting We have with people we bump into on the street, at work, in the supermarket, etc., they've all been planned by God. And what is God's plan? God is concerned with the building of his kingdom. His plan is to bring people into his family as adopted children from every tribe and nation. And he has planned to use us as the means to accomplish this task. Therefore, we must view these seemingly random encounters as actual appointments from God that he has made for us to do what he desires of us. Romans 10, 14 and 15 reads, How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Brethren, we have been sent to preach the good news. Let us be about the business of the Lord. Secondly, I would have us look at the warnings to the churches in the book of Revelation. The reasons for these churches being admonished are still alive today. In Revelation 2, verses 4 and 5, the church of Ephesus was chastised for forsaking their first love. Verse 4 reads, you have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. What was it about you that was so different immediately following your conversion? If we asked your closest friends and family, what would they say about your behavior? Most likely, they would comment on the radical change in your nature. What we are so concerned about, immediately following our conversion, I believe we were dedicated to pleasing Jesus Christ, and we wanted to tell the whole world about the liberation found in the gospel. Jesus is our first love. No one ever cared for us while we were in sin, except Jesus. No one ever willingly gave up his or her own life for our sin, except Jesus. No one continues to love us, and will forever love us, except Jesus. When we first came to know Christ, we were at the pinnacle of euphoria. We couldn't wait to be in church. We prayed and we read God's word every day, And we shared what Jesus had done for us to every living soul we encountered. What happened to us? We have fallen. Either in the reality of living the very difficult Christian life or the imbibing of the negativity of the bitter veteran Christians, we have fallen indeed. Jesus may very well be our first love, but we have forgotten him and the tremendous importance that he has in our lives. Jesus' call to the people in Ephesus is the same to those of us who have forgotten what he looks like. Remember, repent, and do the things we did at first. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me The joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will turn back to you. Psalm 51, verses 10 through 13. Can we be as fired up about being a member in the family of God today as we were when we first believed? Yes, we can. But to do so requires the renewing of the spirit a renewing of the mind, and a restoration of the joy of God's salvation. And only Christ can provide this. Therefore, we must ask of him to supply. And knowing this, what we ask in faith according to his will, he delights to answer. And I'll say this as well, this doesn't happen in a vacuum. God does not just zap us with these things. They come by reading his word and spending quality time with him in prayer. Are we willing? And what about the church in Sardis? Chapter 3, verses 1 through 3 reads, I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard Obey it and repent, but if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. At first glance, these words seem to be rather similar to what Jesus had to say to the church in Ephesus, but it is the phrase that you have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead, that changes this message. The church sounds much like many of of the churches of our day. Everybody can be busy with special programs, Christian schools, Bible studies, youth groups, music rehearsals, and anything else you can think of. To the person outside looking in, this church seems alive, but there is something missing. And because this something is missing, the whole effort is in vain. Despite their dedication to what they are doing, they are ineffectual for Christ, because this something that they are missing is Christ himself. And although they may give lip service and credence to the fact that they are doing all for the advancement of Christ's kingdom, they don't know him at all. The messages that are preached are anything but the gospel. Church is more about going to feel good about oneself in the process of worship. If anyone learns anything about Christ, it's an accident. Doctrine is for sourpuss theologians and not for the lay people of the church. There's no question about if they have truly met with God in the worship service because he is not there. And he is not there because he is not revered and he is not viewed as holy. Sadly, the same thing can be true of a person as well as a church. We can be busy for Christ, doing this thing and that all for the sake of Christ, all the while not knowing who he is. it's easy to see if you are one of these people all you do is honestly examine your motives for service why do you come to church Do you come because you have to or because you somehow feel obliged to come why do you serve in the church Do you serve so you can get your community service hours in or because somebody has to do it or because it makes you feel good if so then there's something wrong some more questions what have you read recently in the Word of God that has made an impact in your life? How's your prayer life? What about the desire to worship God simply for who and what He is? Do you even have such a desire? The remedy for both the churches that we've talked about and the single Christian who have lost their way is this Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die go back to the truth remember your purpose for christian living repent of the years lost to misguided ambition and rededicate yourself to serving your first love jesus christ for for the christian what can be said in summary well for the christian there is much to do the churches of our great country are either on fire for nobody or completely apathetic What a sad state of affairs for a country that was founded on godly principles. But all is not lost. The God of life who breathed the breath of life into our dead souls and caused us to come alive can do so with a dying and dead nation. But if we take the stance that we will wait and see if God will indeed revive our country, we may be sure that it will never come. The revival of a country begins with the revival of its churches. And the revival of the church begins with the revival of its members. And the revival of its members of the church begins with repentance and prayer. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Second Chronicles 7, verse 14. This is a promise of God, and we may take hold of it. Don't be discouraged by what is happening to our nation. Let us fall before the throne of God, knowing that we have an audience with the great I Am. And let us ask for forgiveness for our lukewarm lives. Let us ask to be in his presence and for him to make us holy. Let us ask for the spirit to be rekindled in our lives so that we may be effective in the battle to win men's souls for Christ. Let us ask to be bold for the sake of Christ and having done so, be alert for every opportunity to examine whether he has answered our prayer. We cannot just pray for these things and expect them to miraculously just happen. We must step out in faith. We must act. You cannot pray to be bold in your witness for Christ and not open your mouth to speak. You cannot ask for the Spirit to be rekindled in your life while expecting to live your life as you always have. You cannot ask to be holy and to be in the Lord's presence while you actively are holding on to your sin. You cannot ask for forgiveness of your sin if you have no intention of putting the sinful nature to death. Brethren, faith without works is dead. We know so much theology, especially those of us who have been blessed to be under the excellent instruction of godly pastors. We know so much but we do so little. If we would only do what we know, imagine how effective for Christ we would be. Let us renew our commitment to take up our cross daily and follow Jesus Christ. And for those of you who don't know Christ this day and have no desire to be effective for Christ, you have sat here this morning and listened to me drone on and on about something that you regard as foolishness. Maybe you are religious. Maybe you think that God is a good thing to talk about once in a while, but only on Sundays and religious holidays, if that. You may believe that Jesus Christ was a good man and a good moral teacher, but that's about it. You certainly don't believe that you need him as your savior. After all, you've lived a pretty good life. You're not a murderer, a rapist, adulterer, or whatever. And if there indeed is a God, he will allow you entrance into his kingdom because you're not as bad as a whole lot of other people. Let me ask you a question. Where did you come up with those concepts of God and yourself? Did you get them from the Bible, God's infallible word? Certainly not. You've come to those conclusions about God and yourself on your own. And you have made for yourself, you've made yourself the authority concerning the nature and character of God and your relationship to him If God indeed exists, it would be ludicrous to assume that he is going to function by the misconceptions of his character by one of his creations. The Bible is the inherent word of God. If you want to speak about God and your relationship to him, listen first to what he has to say about himself and you. First, God is holy. Revelation 15 verse 4. Who will not fear you, O Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you. Holy, amongst other things, means separated. God is separated from sin. The earth and everything in it is cursed by sin. And God cannot abide sin because sin is active rebellion against him. Secondly, you are a sinner. That is, you sin every day, and you are in a state of rebellion against God. As a sinner, you are separated from God. Romans 3, verse 12 says, All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Or later in chapter 23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Third, God is just and always punishes sin. Subsequently, he will punish your sin. Revelation 15, verse 3. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the ages. 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 8. He, that is God, will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power. Fourth, either you will pay the price for your own sin with your own never-ending torment in hell, or the penalty for your sin will be paid for by the atoning work of Jesus Christ. Either way, your sin will be punished. The plan of salvation is this. God sent his only son to redeem a wicked and rebellious people for himself. There was no coercion or special thing about those he chose to save other than it pleased him to save those he wills to save. Jesus Christ lived the life that none of us can live, a holy and perfect life. He never sinned. He couldn't. He was God. Yet God made him who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. And what that means is that Jesus Christ paid the penalty for the sins of his people by his work on the cross. When he gave up his perfect life and spilled his perfect blood, God the Father accepted this payment for all of the sins of his chosen people, past, present, and future. Because Jesus followed the will of the Father, obedient unto death, he raised him from the dead and seated him in the highest station in heaven. That means that you don't have to die for your sin. The word of God says, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. As the scriptures say, anyone who puts trust in him will never be put to shame. Romans 10, verses 9 through 11. Today, if you hear his voice calling to you to come to him, don't put it off. For God has also said in Genesis 6, verse 3, my spirit will not contend with man forever right now if you hear his voice calling to you repent of your sins and ask Jesus Christ to come into your life to be your savior and he has promised that he will let's pray father in heaven what a great savior we have and we are thankful for him and your plan of salvation lord as we have listened to your word today if If we have sat under conviction by your word, I pray that instead of just feeling bad, Lord, that we would be proactive and that, Lord, that you will grant us repentance, turn us around from the direction that we are heading. Lord, help us also remember that it's never too late to obey until we're taken from this planet. And so while we have today, Lord, I pray that your people will repent and that we will turn and that we will be effective for the kingdom, and that we will remember our first love. We thank you for that love that we experience as your adopted children. We ask your blessing upon our time. In Jesus' name, amen. 284 in the brown hymnal. Two eight four. Let's stand as we sing, please. Church that truly loves one another as a church where the Spirit is evident. Do we agape one another i pray that we do
3: we are one in the spirit we are one in the lord we are one in the spirit we are one in the lord and we pray that all unity may one day be restored and they'll know we are christians by our love by our love yes they'll know we are christians by our love we will walk with each other we will walk hand in hand We will walk with each other. We will walk hand in hand. And together we'll spread the news that God is in our land. And they'll know we are Christians by our love, by our love. Yes, they'll know we are Christians by our love. We will worship. With each other, we will work side by side. We will work with each other, we will work side by side. Guard each one's dignity and save each one's pride, and they'll know we are Christians by our love, by our love. Yes, they'll know we are Christians by our love. All praise to the Father from whom all things come, and all praise to Christ Jesus, His only Son, and all praise to the Spirit who makes us one. And they'll know we are Christians by our love, by our love. Yes, they'll know we are Christians by our love. George, will you
2: close us in prayer today?